0: Asia Tech Podcast, voice of the Asian tech ecosystem. Hello, this is Asia Tech Podcast, and my name is Graham Brown. This is ATP 600, and today we're talking about, well, we're talking about spreading the word. All around the world, you've got to spread the word. And the word is Asia matters, because shift happens. I want to talk today about my travelers over the next couple of weeks. Some of the people who are coming on the show, some of the people I've interviewed, and what's hot in the Asian markets. Also, yeah, my big move, i tell you about my big move. My life at the moment is in suitcase. I'll tell you a little bit about that in a minute. Packing up, putting all my stuff in a suitcase, heading out of Japan until the next adventure. That's all coming up here on Asia Tech Podcast 600, Asia Matters. So... A lot of what I do is about Asia Matters. When people ask me, you know, what is the the thing that you rap about? It's Asia Matters. Asia Matters Report, which you may have already read, downloaded. You can get it for free on my website. The Asia Matters Podcast, obviously this. Asia Matters Minute, which is a, a one-minute video show that I do on LinkedIn for my LinkedIn followers. Every day, one minute, one insight into why Asia Matters. Usually sharing the latest statistics and data. If we're connected on LinkedIn, then you'll see it every day. So if you're watching them, if you're following them, and I know a bunch of you are, then feel free to like, comment, the usual. What I'm doing now is I'm answering questions from my LinkedIn followers. So you have questions about Asia or any of the data that I share on LinkedIn, then feel free to ask away and I'll do my best to make that a feature in one of my future Asia Matters minutes on LinkedIn. So it's Asia Matters. And the reason why Asia Matters is because, well, Asia is the world's biggest trading block. It's also home to the world's biggest economy. And by 2050, it'd be home to four of the five biggest economies in the world. The only one in the top five that's not Asia will be the US. So... Think about that, the big five economies in the world, four of them are going to be in Asia. Obviously, number one is China, the others being Indonesia, and Japan, India, China. So that's, did I get that right? Those are the four out of the five, India, China, Japan, Indonesia, and the US, obviously making up the big five. It's also home to the world's biggest middle class and uh, that's just going to grow. I mean, if you have a look at the data, I did an Asia Matters Minute the other day, posted it on LinkedIn, number 37. If you can't see them on LinkedIn, you can get them on my website. If you go to atp.show slash Asia Matters Minute or AMM, you can get all the shows, the back the back shows, if you like, the back catalog. And uh, number 37, I was talking about the Asian middle classes, which really is, I suppose, the biggest growth story of our generation of maybe even of the century. Because, you know, we all know that Asia's billions and billions of people, but the real story is those billions are turning into middle class. So those billions are turning into people who spend on iPhones, health insurance, travel, all those kind of things. And that's, uh, you know, that's a major driver for any kind of startup, not just in Asia, but outside of Asia. So the Asian middle class is a phenomenal growth story. So they've gone from about, what, just under a billion in 2009 to so 2030, the Asian middle classes would be three and a half billion. And I believe by 2030, I think it was in AMM 37 that I was talking about it, the Asian middle class would be worth, as a market value, $36 trillion. Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at ATP.show. Let me repeat that. That's $36,000 billion. 36,000 billion. These are just incredible numbers. I think you know it's interesting because you put that into context, 36 trillion is twice the size of the US economy. So let's just sort of step back and think about that. The Asian middle class will be twice the size of the US economy. So Asia is well on the way to becoming self-sufficient. Although we tend to sort of think of Asia still in the west as this home of, you know, garment manufacturing. Cheap factories, sweatshops, and it still has all that. It still has all those outsourced factories, but it also has now what it didn't have 10 years ago a really fast growing middle class who have money. So you have the middle classes, you have the mega cities, which I'm going to talk about in a minute because I love mega cities. I live in the world's biggest city so far, but that's going to all change, right? Not only are we moving out, but The world's biggest city is going to change and interestingly most people don't even know where the world's biggest city is going to be in 10 years time i'll tell you about that in a minute and startup funding as well if you have a look at the latest data i think it's uh 70 $70 billion dollars of startup funding in asia in 2017 75 billion in north america or the us sorry not north america So it's only like 6% behind. So that would make Asia 6% behind the US and it's caught up fast. So from going from like 50% behind, it's only 6% behind now. So surely startup funding in Asia will pass the US in 2018, 2019, which is a significant story. So you add all that together, world's biggest trading block, world's biggest economy, world's biggest middle class, world's biggest cities, world's biggest startup ecosystem, It all adds up. That's why Asia matters. That's why I bang on about it, because we don't realize it. We still think Asia is all about cheap T-shirts, Nike shoes, and, you know, electronic widgets. It has that, but things have changed. Now, Asia has gone from being, you know, the, the servant of the West to being the most important economy in the world, the most important market in the world. So that's why I talk about it on a regular basis, just to educate people, because it's not a zero-sum game. I think that's the point. It's not a zero-sum game. Like I talked about in the last Asia Matters podcast, ATP 590, the rise of the Asian century is really to the benefit of the West. But, you know, if we approach it from the angle of the wall builders, you know, if we start sort of retreating and thinking that the way we can contain the rise of Asia is by building walls whether they're the literal walls or the figurative walls like the tariffs if you look at the you know the policies of some of the western politicians it's just insane that is not the way to deal with it you don't compete by imposing tariffs you compete by diving in head first so those that will win and those that don't will lose and that shift has a historical precedent. And that's what I talk about in ATP 590 and 580. So I won't go into that too much today. It's out there. If you want to go a bit deeper and learn a bit about the Asian century and, you know, what came before the Asian century and those sort of patterns which exist, which, you know, for the last 200 years, we've had the rise of different superpowers. And it's been very consistent. The British century, the American century, the Asian century have followed almost to the year, 100-year patterns. Uncannily, go and check that out, 580 and 590. And by the way, if you're listening on iTunes and subscribe, so if, you're, if you subscribe on iTunes, you'll get access to all that content. So it's delivered to your inbox, along with all the other podcast interviews on Asia Tech Podcast. So that is the word that I'm trying to spread here on Asia Tech Podcast. And it, it sort of takes two formats. One is the the statistics, which is me, really, just me banging the drum about Asia, it's the science, really. I'm the guy in the white lab coat who comes out with a clipboard and says, you know, this is why Asia matters. And then on top of that, you have all the stories, which is what makes Asia just so exciting. You have Asia Tech Stories, ATP Stories, sorry, which is a podcast that I run here on Asia Tech Podcast, as well as the other stories, the hosts on Asia Tech Podcast. So you have Ashley Talks, you have Cross Border Kyle, Digital Lives Asia, and now the start, which are all sort of storytelling about what's going on in Asia from different angles. Plus, we'll have more hosts joining us too. So you have the stats and the stories really turn those stats into meaningful experiences. So you can understand, you can, you can sort of say, okay, fine, I understand that Asian entrepreneurship is on the rise, but here's the actual stories of that's happening. Here are the people doing that, right? And that makes it just so much more interesting, so that's how I'm uh, building this platform for Asia Matters. Asia Tech Podcast is obviously a core to that. And what I'm doing as well is now I'm, I'm going to be traveling the next few weeks. So let me tell you a little bit about my travels because it sort of it gives another dimension to Asia Tech Podcast and Asia Matters. I'm going to be in Japan, Hong Kong, China, mainland China, and Thailand in the next over a period of four days. So that's going to be pretty insane. So I fly out of Tokyo to Shanghai. And then from Shanghai, I've got a day in Shanghai. I fly from Shanghai to Hong Kong. And as soon as I touch down at the airport, I've got a meeting with Kyle, Kyle Ellicott, who runs the Cross Border Kyle podcast here on Asia Tech Podcast, which I thoroughly recommend if you're into, you know, that whole sort of East West thing. I'll tell you a bit about the meeting in a minute. And then I've got a couple of days in Hong Kong and then heading up to Thailand. And I'll tell you why Thailand in a minute. So let's unpack all those jumping off points. So Tokyo. So I came to Tokyo in 1995 first. I absolutely love Tokyo, and it's my home. I live here. I live outside of Tokyo. I mean, when I say I live outside of Tokyo, you could could take a a train two hours from Tokyo and still be in Tokyo. So put it into context. It's the biggest city in the world. 39.6 million people live in Tokyo, which is bigger than the population of California, 39.2 million. And I mean, you know, you just, uh, if you ever come to Tokyo, one of the things you must do is go up one of the tall buildings. You could go up Skytree, which is the second tallest building in the world, even though it doesn't count as a, well, it's not in those lists of tallest buildings in the world because it's actually a radio mast. But, you know, it's not an, it, it has restaurants and stuff in it but you can go up to the top of Skytree and just have a look over Tokyo and you'll see like just the phenomenal expanse of Tokyo it is just insane how big this thing is and it's like on a Tokyo's like a flat plane which makes it even more impressive because you look out from Skytree over the buildings of Tokyo and you, I think SkyTree is like 630 meters or something like that. So you get a, an amazing view on a clear day. And actually, it's better if you come during winter because it's so much clearer. In summer, it gets quite hazy. So you look out over Tokyo. And if you look out... So if you're looking out southwest from Tokyo, you look out to, towards Mount Fuji, and you can actually see Mount Fuji on a good day. And that's sort of... you know I live between Tokyo and Mount Fuji. So... I say I live in Tokyo, but I don't really – people don't know where I live unless you live in Japan. I live near Enoshima, if you know it. So that's where I live. I'm going to be in Tokyo for a few days as I leave here. As a family, we're leaving here. I'll tell you a little bit about our our plans in a minute. And I'll be in Tokyo for a few days. I've got a few meetings lined up, a few podcasts scheduled. And then uh, I'm flying to Shanghai. land on the friday and here's the thing you know one of the things about travel is is you you go to great lengths planning travel especially around asia because it's a lot of fun traveling to these new places because you know one of the things i talk about is like you know you can take a five hour flight from singapore to you know anywhere in asia you'll cover effectively three and a half billion people from five hours from singapore You know, you just can't get that kind of coverage anywhere else in the world. If you took a five-hour flight from San Francisco, I think you'd get about 550 million people. So my point is, is like, one of the beauties of Asia is that you take any of those hubs, those major hubs, whether it's Singapore, Bangkok, Hong Kong, Shanghai, Shenzhen, Tokyo, Seoul, whatever it is, and you can reach billions of people. Just think about that. And that's why it's just so exciting to travel around Asia. So I love traveling around Asia. And you can travel around Asia dirt cheap, especially if you're flying from Singapore or even KL now with Air Asia, you, you can get around, you can access markets of billions for a hundred bucks. You know, with Air Asia, you can pretty much get around Asia for a hundred dollars. So that whole thing about not having access to consumers is just going away. And you combine that with what I just talked about with the middle class, it just becomes a, a phenomenally, compelling proposition for any startup now. So I love traveling around Asia and, uh, you know, I go to great lengths to plan and, you know, make sure I get the maximum use of my time. And, you know, I, I book hotels. I try and stay at the hotel in the airport where possible. You know, even if it's a bit more expensive, it's just, you know, it's just so much less hassle. So I have all that planned. And then I, I have, Shanghai books on Friday the 6th, which I find out is a national holiday. So that's the one thing I forget, is that actually all these different places have different holidays. So you can screw up. You know, even for me who's been traveling around Asia for 20-odd years, you can mess up from time to time. So I'm going to be in Shanghai for a day. I'm meeting up with Kane, who I interviewed On the show, go and check out that interview. It was a really good sort of insight into the world of uh, innovation in China and Intel. He runs the Ideas to Reality Accelerator for Intel China. And uh, we're going to be heading over to Xnode and China Accelerator. So I'm really looking forward to that because that'd be my first time spent with those accelerators in Shanghai. So I've got 24 hours in Shanghai. Really looking forward to it. I love Shanghai. It's just such a good vibe. I mean, if you've, you know, it, it, again, like Tokyo, Shanghai has a phenomenal skyline. And, um, you know, it, whereas Tokyo has Sky Shanghai has the, uh, I think it's the, is it the Shanghai Financial Center Tower? I can't remember. What's it called? Shanghai Tower? They're like almost the same height. So Skytree is like 630 meters and the, the Shanghai Tower is like 623 or something like that. It's like seven meters different. I can't remember. I'm plucking figures out the air, but you know, the difference is four or five, maximum 10 meters. But Shanghai Tower is actually a tower. It's actually listed in those sort of top 10 tallest buildings in the world. You can go right to the top, whereas you can't do that on Skytree. You can only go up to the observation deck. So, you know, if you get a chance, go to uh, any kind of the, the, the buildings around the Bund where you've got a bit of a view. It's just incredible, especially at night. You've got the river. You can see all those, you know, all the buildings that you see. Whenever you see a picture of Shanghai sort of nestled up against, flush up against the water, you see those pictures. It's just amazing. You really feel the energy of the place. And, of course, I mean, Shanghai is smaller than Tokyo. It's what? 28, 30 million people or something like that. 30 million people, but it's on the move. And it's certainly one of the most exciting startup capitals in the world. I mean, this is the difference between Tokyo and, and Shanghai. For those that haven't spent much time in either, is that Tokyo is, you know, historically been seen as like a center of technology for the world. And I was just looking, it's interesting, because we're, we're, we're packing to leave the house uh, there was a bag sitting on, I was just eating lunch today. There was a bag sitting on our floor from Big Camera. Big Camera is like, a, a you know, one of the major electron, electronic chains in in Japan. So if you ever come to Japan, you'll probably end up at Big Camera. It's just, yeah, it's, it's, you could lose a day in there. It's like 10 floors of just gadgets and all this kind of stuff. And The bag, they had this huge bag sitting on our living room floor and I was just looking down it and like all the brands, it lists out all the brands, a big camera and just looking at all the Japanese brands, you know, phenomenal. If you think about how many of those electronics brands are Japanese, I mean, whether or not they're still relevant as they were sort of 20 years ago is a different story. And I talk a bit about that on Asia Tech podcast in Asia Matters, talking about Japan and China and the rise and fall of them, right? But, you know, all those Japanese electronics brands from Sony to National, Panasonic, NEC, TDK, uh, go back 30 years and these are world leaders, right? So Japan's always been seen as a hub for electronics. Um, but, you know, obviously that's changed and it's been challenged by China and other places in Asia now. But, you know, when it comes to startup activity, Japan really doesn't punch for you know in its weight. It, it did just really lags behind, considering it's the world's biggest city, Tokyo, you know, compared to Shanghai is nothing in terms of startup activity. And this is really cultural. And if you talk to any of the, um, if you've already you listened to any of the interviews on Asia tech podcast, A- ATP stories with Japanese startup founders, you, well, firstly, you'll notice that there aren't many considering the size of the market. There are not many Startup founders in Japan. And secondly, you realize that from day one, they face significant, you know, significant resistance in what they're doing. Because being a startup founder in Japan is nothing like it is in China. In China, it's almost the coolest thing to do. In Japan, being a startup founder is still very much seen as an alternative lifestyle. And it's a challenge. I had a really good conversation with Simon Kim. Who is going to be on Asia Tech Podcast Stories very soon. And he he runs the the XFAST, the uh the fast.jp accelerator. Sorry if I got the name wrong. Um but it, it's in the it's in the show notes. And uh basically, you know, he's come from outside of Japan, but I mean, he speaks Japanese, but you know, he's talking about that sort of cultural resistance to startup founders in Japan. It's changing, but it's way behind China. And that's what you get when you go to Shanghai. You just see sort of how it could be. I don't think Shanghai is the, has the most startup per 100,000 population or however you want to measure it in China. I put some data out on Asia Matter Minutes on LinkedIn uh, a couple of weeks ago, and actually... I think Zuhai, if I've got the pronunciation pronunciation right, Zuhai is in the Guangdong province. Is the startup city in China with the, sorry the city in China with the most startups per population, and it has something. Here is the interesting fact, right? It has ten times as many startups per person than the most startupiest city in America which happens to be Miami, Florida. And I think if you look at the data, and again, go back to Asia Matters Minute, if you look at the data, number 10 city in China, which I don't know what it is, but the 10th startup year city, if I can use that word. So the 10th city in that ranking, startups per person, has significantly higher, almost like double, what Miami has, so Miami the the highest activity rate in America. I mean, just compare that. People talk about the U.S. being the bastion of entrepreneurship, but really it isn't. Especially when you look at places like China, even though you know uh, people say, "Oh, well China's you know four or five times as big as as the U.S." But that data was based on per person, so. You know, even when now you factor in the size of the Chinese market, it gets even bigger. So that's Shanghai. Very much looking forward to that. And then I'm off to Hong Kong, flying visit in Shanghai, off to Hong Kong. And uh, so here's the thing about Hong Kong. If you listen to, if you get the chance, listen to um, cross-border Kyle, the Kyle Helicopter. That's me and Kyle rapping about that cross-border life. So Kyle's flying in from San Francisco He's landing at Hong Kong for the Launchpad conference, which is like, I think, one of the biggest startup expos in China, if not Asia, for the year. There's like 50,000, 60,000 people at these conferences, if that's the one. Well, the organizers run that expo, but I don't know if startup Launchpad is actually that big. So I'm getting my data wrong, but it's the biggest one anyway. So that's taking place in Hong Kong on the the week of the 10th of April. So he's flying in from San Francisco into Hong Kong, and I happen to be coming through Shanghai, heading to Thailand, and I'm landing in Hong Kong on the same day. Well, I'll get there a day before, but we'll meet at the airport. So Carl's going to get in at around about 7 in the morning, and we've got our coffee already set up. That's going to be fun. So I haven't met Carl before, and that's absolutely why I love doing podcasting because, you know, how how do you get an opportunity to meet people like this? It's just phenomenal, right? So we're meeting up at uh, Hong Kong airport in the morning, Monday morning. I don't know what state Carl's going to be in. I mean, he does sort of talk a good game. He says he's going to be up for it in charge. But I think even the most optimistic of, you know, hardened travelers is pretty worn down after a 12 plus hour flight. Plus all that sort of nonsense for the time difference from San Francisco. So San Francisco to Hong Kong, it's like a 15-hour difference. So it's one of those ones that is really hard to work out. You know, it's sort of flip-flopped and then plus three hours. So (laughs) I don't know what kind of moods he's going to be in. He's going to be super excited and then he'll sort of, you know, once he sits down or once he has breakfast, he'll be gone. Just zone out. Hopefully that's not the case. Hopefully the coffee will see us through. So we've got that meeting planned. We want to do, I mean, we're going to do a bit of live rap in there. We're going to do some Asia matters stuff, maybe a, a podcast recording at the airport, certainly do some video for Asia, Asia matters minute on LinkedIn. So if you're on my LinkedIn feed, look out for something on the 9th and 10th of April from Hong Kong airport. And then um heading into town and we've got a, a bit of a, what was turned into a, a bit of a meetup, falling a bit of a flash mob, forming out a meta. So we got Kyle, myself, Ashley, who does the Ashley Phenomenal Ashley Talks podcast, which has just you know being so exciting to watch how that grows. Um, Bain McLaughlin would be there as well, which would be a first for all these people to get together. And then uh, Johan Nilinder. So Johan Nilinder was uh, on my on my podcast talking about. Shenzhen Superstars. He's a Swedish journalist and he's written this book called Shenzhen Superstars, which is just a really interesting insight into the stories of Shenzhen just over the border here from Hong Kong, which, you you know, I think, I don't know if the the high-speed train's opened yet, but you can get from Hong Kong to Shenzhen in 14 minutes. So Shenzhen is like the capital of world electronics and entrepreneurship as well, possibly. So that's just over the border. Bay, obviously, Brink Hardware takes a lot of foreign companies into China, which is great. I'll talk a bit about these guys in a minute because I want to talk about them in the context of all the other people that have been on the show and who's coming up as well. And then while I'm done in Hong Kong, I'm flying out to Thailand. But before I do that, I've got to mention this. I've got two goals in Hong... Sorry, no. Let me back up a little. I've got four goals in Hong Kong. The first one is to meet Carl at the airport. The second one is to meet Carl, Johan, Ashley and Bay in Hong Kong, in central that meta on the Monday. And then the third one is I want to climb up to the top of the peak. I do that every time I go to Hong Kong, I walk up to the top. It sounds a bit crazy, but it's absolutely possible. I love doing that. The view is, I think the best city skyline in the world so I am on to do that again. I often do it on my own. Um, sometimes you meet people walking up on the way. It's just a bit of a pilgrimage to the top of the peak. You know, I don't take the cable car. I don't take a taxi because you're getting to the top. The cost, you know, the, the effort that you make to get to the top of the peak makes it more worthwhile. So I love doing that, especially if you get a clear day. And what did I say? Three and four. Yeah, I want to... Go and see if I can. I don't know what sort of stage it's at now, because last time I went to Hong Kong was last summer. Uh, the state of the Macau-Zuhai-Hong Kong Bridge, which is due to open this summer, 2018. So I want to go and see if I can capture some video of that. I would love to, because it's not just a bridge. It's, it's significant for three reasons. The first reason is it connects Hong Kong and Macau, And right now, there's just a stretch of water between them. It will be, the second reason, the world's longest bridge, I believe 57 kilometers. And, you know, that's testament really to Chinese construction prowess. They just get shit done. And the third reason is sort of, I suppose it's part of two initiatives. One is the Greater Bay Initiative, which links up those 11 cities in the Pearl River Delta, And also One Belt, One Road, the Belt and Road Initiative, which we talk a bit about. Um, I've got a few guests that have come on Asia Tech Podcast that talk about the Belt and Road Initiative. Obviously, Bay McLaughlin talks a lot about it and... That's a a big thing for him to get that out and educate the world about Belt and Road because understanding Belt and Road really is about understanding the future of Asia, creating all this kind of connectivity between China and the world, really through Asia. The data's out there. As you know, not only is it a $5,000 billion spend in terms of infrastructure, it connects two-thirds of the world's populations and we're sort of standing outside of it in Asia, just watching it. And or a lot of the, the the commentary just sort of is very critical of it. saying, you know, Belt and Road is all about Chinese soft power. Well, so what if it is? You know, you go way back, and I talk about this in ATP 590. Go back to the beginning of the, Asia, the American century, 1915, the World Fair in San Francisco and so on. American soft power, but the America, you know, the world benefited from American soft power. You know, I'm talking about telecommunications, railroads, automotive, you know, electricity, lighting, all those kind of things that benefited the world. We needed that soft power. So in the same way, we need Chinese soft power as well, because the world needs that connectivity. It needs the bridges and the trade lines and the the train tracks and the ports that One Belt, One Road will create. So Kerry Brown, who's the author of um, many books on China, was on Asia Tech Podcast recently and he talks a lot about Belt and Road and Xi Jinping, who's the president of China. His strategy for the Chinese vision, if you like, of, of Belt and Road and the role that China will play in the Asian century is fascinating because as you know, as commentators go, he's probably the most well informed on China, Xi Jinping, Belt and Road, and the Asian century, I guess. So listen to that when it comes out. And if you can go and get a copy of his book, because it really is, I suppose it just cuts through the BS about, which is really, you know, what the media, the Western media are putting out there about the rise of the Asian century. We want to kind of put the the record straight. So those are my four goals in Hong Kong. Once I've done in Hong Kong, I'm moving to Thailand. I said moving to Thailand. I'm going there and we're taking the family there i'm taking the family well we've all decided to go there we're moving to thailand we've been living in japan for nearly three years now and we're heading to thailand how about that because i love thailand i don't know anybody that doesn't love thailand i mean what can you not love about thailand the food the people the weather the beaches and um this is a pattern in our lives which has sort of been going on for the last, well, what is it now? The last seven years, six, seven years. So that is, you know, that we have lived quite a location independent lifestyle and um, lived all over the world from 2012. We just sold up and went and traveled the world, went all over New Zealand, Hawaii, Fiji, California, California, Lived a bit in Spain off the west coast of Africa in the Canary Islands, been on the mainland Spain, a little bit in Cyprus. And uh, then came to Okinawa, which is a beautiful little island in between Japan and Taiwan in the the South China Sea, which is sort of like the old trading trading port between Japan and China back in, uh, what era would that have been? The... I don't know what dynasty that would have been in China, but you know, well before that would have been like sort of 16th, 17th centuries. So we lived there for a bit, which is beautiful. We then moved to, uh, we moved to mainland Japan where I just mentioned, South of, of Tokyo near Mount Fuji. Um, and by the way, it's not my first time in Asia or Japan. I came to Asia first in 1995. I, I backpacked around. I tell, I mean, anybody that, I had a an Indonesian guest on the show just recently, Abraham Ozan, who is um, doing some amazing work with MedTech in rural Indonesia. It's just going out into the, the rural areas and helping women, Indonesian women who don't have access to uh, prenatal care. So, you know, that would be, you know, like for pregnant women and all those, you know, creating devices to help, midwives monitor the uh, the progress of mum and baby and just feed that back to doctors back in Jakarta, you know, the main city and the hosp- main hospitals. Just, you know, amazing work. Just really good to see as well that sort of, you know, that's an Indonesian solution for Indonesian people. And, um, you know, I love talking to Indonesian people because I spent a bit of time there. I did two months backpacking around. Well, I did more than two months l- illegally, I have to say. Uh, back in 1994 or five, I think, when President Sahado was in power in, in Indonesia and I, I landed in Jakarta and just backpacked all my way across Java, uh, Bali, Lombok. Um, you know, people a lot of people go to Lombok now. I went to Lombok and the Gili Islands when they were just, you know, they were just reed huts on the beach. There was nothing there. Sumbawa, Komodo, where the dragons are, all the way out to the easternmost islands and i went out to flores which very few people go to and very few people have actually seen foreigners there at that time in 1994 or five uh it was just a really enriching experience being able to be among those people you know sailing around the islands and i just fell in love i mean i really fell in love with indonesia and asia at that point it was my first real experience of asia and i fell in love with the adventure that was asia like all the sights and the sounds everything from the smells of those clove critic cigarettes to the sounds of the gamelan for me it was so special you know i'd come from england where everything was so different that for me i really felt alive and i had to go back so you know the opportunity came to go and teach english in japan in the mid 90s and i was there not not a not a hesitation i just took the opportunity and went couldn't speak a word of japanese and i my ticket and I went and it was the best thing I ever did. And so, you know, my sort of history of being in Asia is over 20 years now. And absolutely love Asia. And the next part of the adventure is for us to move to Thailand. And I think it's uh, you know, I there's a word which I like to use to describe the lifestyle. And I think about my son in this context and it's boundaryless. I think, you know, a lot of us live in very boundaryed, bordered worlds behind walls. But to sort of live in a lifestyle where you're not attached to an identity or a place, even though you may decide to stay there, that's real freedom. And I think it's kind of what we need in this era as the Asian century unfolds. What we don't need is we don't need people who want to make America great again and to that extent make China great again. We don't need those people. They're not good for the Asian century because every one of those people creates two uh, antagonists elsewhere. Everybody that stands up and says, we're going to make our country great again, creates two enemies. So it doesn't benefit us. What we need is people who are out there who see the connections and join the dots between all of these countries because that's the case. You know, so many of the people that came on Asia Tech podcast that come from outside, come from outside of Asia or who have moved around Asia. You know, and they have so much more in common with each other than they do with people from their hometowns or their home countries. And that's why I think it's really important when you take these adventures to choose those people that you hang around with carefully. There's a great saying by the author Jim Rohn, who says, you are the sum of the five people you hang around with. Let me say that again. You are the sum of the five people you hang around with. So if you hang around with five people who, or the people you hang around with on a daily basis are negative or are critical or are fearful, then you become like that because that's human nature. You end up like that. However, if you hang around with people who are positive, open-minded, who see the goodness in humanity, you become like that as well because As much as you want to fit in, there are some positive benefits to fitting in as well. You get influenced by these people. And those are the kind of people we need to be hanging around with in the Asian century. People who get that. Because when people talk about Asia, we need to be equipped mentally to deal with it. Because it is unknown. It is, uh, you know, an uh, something on the horizon, which for a lot of people in the West, they're quite fearful of. So we have to get out there. We have to educate people. Uh, we have to show by example that this is something that we can all benefit from. You know, so I think in choosing your adventure, pick your band of brothers, if you like, and sisters to adventure with. You know, I think of that old African proverb, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together so go back to some of those people that i choose to hang around with and this is the thing you can choose to hang around with who you want okay not necessarily you can't change your family but everything else you can change let's say you're not hanging around with the kind of people that you want to hang around with you could change where you hang around with these people you could move to a different city you could In your own city, start a meetup and attract people to you. Just plant a flag. Build your own tribe. Why not? You don't have to wait to be picked. If you want those people in your life, then plant a flag. Let them rally around and do what I do. My way of planting a flag is running this podcast. For me, it's the best business development tool ever. Look who I get to meet. I get to meet some amazing people. And look who I get to talk to and learn from, you know, I speak to these people. I speak to my guests and learn about their stories. And it's like hanging out with them because their stories influence me. They inspire me. They make me raise my game. Could you imagine if I was hanging, if I was interviewing people who were like miserable and, you know, they were blaming the world and politics and all that. If I was interviewing these people, not only would it would it not be interesting, You you wouldn't want to listen to this stuff, but... You know, what kind of effect would that have on you or me listening to it? Luckily, I don't. I do the opposite. I hang around with people, interview the people I think are amazing. Now, these people have really overcome challenges. They've stepped outside their comfort zone. You know, take, for example, some of the, the people I've been meeting in Hong Kong and I've interviewed recently, like Johan Nilander, who came from Sweden to Hong Kong and is writing about China. You know, there you go, stepping outside the comfort zone, telling the world about how it is, telling the stories of people in one of the most exciting cities in the world, which is Shenzhen. That's his book, Shenzhen Superstars, by the way. And uh, what about Kyle, Kyle Ellicott, coming from San Francisco to Hong Kong? You know, you could easily get lost in that San Francisco bubble. But he chooses not to. He chooses to challenge himself and step out of it. And it's not an easy flight. It's not an easy transition. But he chooses to do that. That's the adventure. Or look recently about two of the partners in Seed Plus that I interviewed recently for Asia Tech Podcast, Michael Smith and Chiraya Watke. I mean, they both sort of, they both come from outside into Asia and not necessarily into China, but into Singapore because they're focused on Southeast Asia. I mean, that's a real challenge. And look at Chiraya Watke as an example. He left Google to come to Asia. Not because it necessarily paid more, because I'm sure Google would have been the better opportunity long term. Or it was anyway safer. Obviously, Google is the safest opportunity. You're not going to get fired. But because... You know, the opportunity to 10X something is here in Asia. You know, everything's priced in the West. All the opportunities are priced in already. However, come to Asia and it's there. It's untapped in many ways. It's frontier. It's 10X. The 10X is here. The bigger challenges. And I think that's what attracts talent. I mean, I was talking to John Tanner. Again, you know, he's... John Tanner runs Mitchell Lake Group and he uh effectively it's a recruitment company that deals with talent and talent trends in in Asia and the world, but a lot of it is Asia, and he sort of is that the he's that the vanguard of that chain. So when he sees, you know, on a day to day basis, people coming into Asia, he sees that change happening. He sees the people actually doing it. You know, moving from Australia or moving from America or Europe into Singapore or Hong Kong and increasingly places like Thailand or Vietnam, he sees it. So you know for them, he, he sees as well, and like I going back to like Chiraya Wadke from Google, he sees that the real talent, the talented people, are motivated not by money because they, they can make money anywhere. The real talented people are motivated by challenge and they're motivated by the ability to work on something that makes a big difference. And that that something could be smart cities or it could be opening up a new market or it could be helping startups in in you know, an ecosystem where it needs a lot of help. Like, for example, just recently, Jean-Pierre said said a guy who came from, France, to to Singapore, to Southeast Asia, to help startups because they're in in Southeast Asia. There's so much energy, but they don't have the processes that they have elsewhere in the world. That's a real challenge because you may say, you know, I, I just want to work for startups who know what they're doing. Well, you know, again, all the opportunities priced in to those startups. The real challenge is taking something that's quite, quite raw talent. And bring it in, the, the upside that isn't there already from the outside. So bring it in, those sort of processes and, you know, that experience that they don't necessarily have because they're almost like first-generation entrepreneurs in these markets. And then you have people like Bay McLaughlin who, you know, he left Apple to come to Hong Kong. You know, what what does that say in terms of stepping outside your comfort zone? So he came to Hong Kong. And I think, I can't remember his story, but I think he backpacked around Asia just to try out different cities first. But he settled in Hong Kong. You know, now has uh, that, you know, rapidly growing brink operation based in Hong Kong, which takes, uh, you know, foreign companies into China and connects them with all those sort of hardware manufacturers over the border in Shenzhen. And, you you know, one of his things is, is educating the people that haven't made that step yet. So all those people that haven't left Silicon Valley yet, that haven't left uh, Apple HQ or anywhere in the West about Asia, because they have their heads in the sand. You know, he was at South by Southwest recently talking about that. You'd be surprised how many people don't even know about the Greater Bay. I mean, I mentioned this already. I mentioned at the top of the podcast about the world's biggest city. Go to Google perhaps. Type in the Greater Bay and tell me what you find. I bet you it won't land on the Pearl River Delta where it needs to land in China. It shows you Singapore Bay. What did I just say? It shows you San Francisco Bay, the Bay. But the Greater Bay isn't San Francisco. It's the 11 cities around the Pearl River Delta. It's a project in the making. And it will be 66 billion people and twice the GDP of San Francisco. And not just San Francisco, but the whole Bay Area. So think about that, what that means for the future. Because most people don't even know about it. But it's happening right here, right now on our watch. So we need people to step outside of their comfort zone, put themselves a little bit at risk, put themselves out to criticism to go out and talk about these stories. And that's what these people are doing, and that's the platform that I want to build to help them do that. And it's not just people like Bay on the startup side. I mean, look at uh, the recent episode Ashley did with French actor Philippe Jolie. I mean, how awesome was that? So here's a French actor who came to China to break into the Chinese movie industry. I mean, how hard is that? You're not Chinese. You don't speak Chinese. Obviously, that's changed, but you know, as a challenge, how phenomenal is that? And you've got to respect people like that because they just—they are the ones that blaze a trail for everybody else to follow. But they—they they put themselves out. There's so much to risk, and you know, sometimes I sit back in awe of the people who are able to do that, take a massive risk. You know, they—they they step right out of their comfort zone, and whilst. For them, they're doing it because they love a challenge. It's the net impact of that for everybody else that really is what's truly awesome about that achievement is that they make it possible for other people. By them taking a risk and putting their livelihoods and their reputation, everything on the line, they make it a lot safer for everybody else to follow in their footsteps. So we need people like that. And as much as we need them, we need to tell their stories because it's all those people that are kind of waiting for those pioneers to go out there and do that first and report back and say, you know, it's all right. I'm still alive. I'm still here. So, I mean, this is some of many people that have been on Asia Tech Podcasts recently who really have been pioneering in their their personal lives and their businesses The ones I've just mentioned, you have, as another example, Ludovic Bodin, who, uh, again, another French entrepreneur in in Beijing, in China. I don't know what it is, but I don't know if it's just attention bias. But for some reason, I'm talking to a lot of French entrepreneurs recently. I love it. I love it. I mean, they're just, you know, they're all very genuine people. And even though I'm British and they're French, we, we share so much in common in our stories, and you can completely relate to the struggles and the challenges that they've overcome. I mean, so he came to Beijing well before the Olympics in 2008 and has helped, uh, you know, helped sort of grow that expat community there. And now he's an, uh, an entrepreneur and investor in Beijing, um, you know, fully settled in China, speaks Mandarin, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. But you know he, he getting his story out there as an example will make it possible for others to do that because not everybody has the same capacity to for risk as they do. So by them doing it it de-risks that whole process so you know, a new generation of people can come through and that's what we need. that's absolutely what we need. There are many more I mean another French there we go. I don't know. I mean you know, hat tip to all those French listeners out there today. Merci beaucoup. Thank you so much for making this possible. You really are leading by example. Alex Medana, once again, another French entrepreneur, came came to France, I mean, sorry, came to to Asia to seek out opportunity and the energy, the energy that is Asia. And, you know, there's a long way to, I know, for example, that French uh President, I think he's the president. Or was he prime minister? I was getting muddled up. Macron uh, recently announced that he, you know, he's a young guy as well. Announced that he wanted to get entrepreneurs to come to France, and you have like that big uh, Le Station in Paris or whatever it's called. That you know, the biggest co-working space in the world, or the biggest startup incubator in the world, is in Paris. And you know, all these these French entrepreneurs coming to Asia will create lines of communication back to France and that will impact the French tech ecosystem for the better. I mean, you have the French tech in Asia, which seems to be everywhere, and it's doing a great job. In the same way, if you look at Asia's rise, a lot of that is to do with the Chinese entrepreneurs, as they call the bamboo network, which sort of spreads all over Southeast Asia is a network of Chinese entrepreneurs who, you know, have connections somehow back to China. And that's been instrumental in the growth of this generation of Southeast Asian capital and how important that's been. So I I guess what this comes down to is that, you know, what the point I'm trying to make is that cross-border, what's the word I'm looking for, pollination of some sort cross-border integration creates a stronger world. It does absolutely create a stronger world because, you know, Asia's rise is the result of those networks, those pathways that exist across Asia, Chinese entrepreneurs, all that sort of stuff. And then you have these expats coming to, from outside of Asia, into Asia, creating this other layer of connectivity, And that then feeds back to outside the world. So they're bringing in ideas and knowledge from outside the world, outside world from Silicon Valley or from Europe or wherever it may be. And that just makes a a stronger ecosystem in the long run. And it's not just outside of Asia, into Asia, you've got Asians moving from within Asia. I mean, just recently I interviewed Gautam Ganguly. It's a great interview if you want to learn about selling software as an example. I mean, he moved from, India, I think it was Delhi, to Bangkok. Not many Indians do that. And that's just a, you know, it's a brave move, not an easy move. So I think everywhere you look around, what's really exciting about Asia is that multiculturalism really is uh, such a strong story. And in a way, if you go back to the, the success of America for 100 years, how much of that was to do with multiculturalism? I think a, a major factor, if you look at San Francisco as an example, I think it was the most diverse city in in uh, America in the 20th century. And that diversity created the, the qualities needed to build a technology ecosystem. So you had different skill sets. You had Asians. You had... The Irish, you had this, you know, the Europeans, you had Jewish money, you had Germans, you had all different kinds of inputs into that startup ecosystem that made it possible. And we started to see that magical evolutionary soup happening in Asia too. So, you know, when you think about this, I think about all these people that got, you know, who stepped outside of their comfort zone and moved either within Asia or into Asia. And they're all still alive and well and growing. You know, it was never a straight line, but I think if you ask every single one of them, and I do ask them indirectly on the show, they would all say it was the best thing they ever did. I don't think any of them have said in their interviews that they're considering moving back. That's like not even a an option. Maybe... maybe you know, if things don't work out and they will from time to time, maybe they're at a weak point and they're, it's an option to move back, but it's never one that gets to the point of, you know, being the, the the final outcome, the return to Europe or America or wherever. And in some cases people move back and then come back to Asia because they miss out. They miss it. They miss that vibe. So you know, like uh, Alison Baum who was on uh Asia Tech Podcast stories recently talking about moving to Asia, moving from New York, I believe, and setting up Fresco Capital, a VC based in Asia. Her advice, which I've been I've been uh I've been stealing and using myself, which I think is fantastic, and I'm I'm kind of like, you know, using the, the phrase myself now, but it's so powerful. It's like, stop talking about the importance of Asia and start showing up. You now, that is my advice to everybody today. Stop talking and start showing up because now everybody's talking about Asia outside of Asia. And it's easy to talk, but it's a lot harder to show up and showing up is so much different to talking about Asia from afar. You know, everybody needs to experience Asia. And the only way you can do it is by showing up. You don't have to live here, but make a commitment somehow. Come here, backpack here, come on one of the innovation road trips or whatever it may be. But you have to show up. This is the future. So here's where the opportunity is. Don't limit yourself. I mean, look at all the people that we've had on Asia Tech Podcast. This is all about challenge. This is all about challenge. This is what it's about. You know, this is why I think Asia is so exciting because it's attracting people who are up for the challenge. You know, people don't come. Asia is not attracting talented people uh, who are complaining or miserable. They're attracting people who are positive, who want to make a change. And that's, you know, that's what makes Silicon Valley so special is because you get that, that exponential effect of putting positive people with positive people. That becomes the zeitgeist. That becomes a default. So once you start attracting that, you get that sort of compounding of the culture. And that's happening now in Asia. And it's the shift is happening. Right now, it's, it's, it's the pioneers and the opportunities. But now that's shifting. It's moving on. It will get to the point where your average career person will start thinking, I need to get to Asia because I'm going to miss out. We're not there yet, but that's going to happen soon. So if you want to get in before the window closes, get in before those guys get in. Get in before your average middle manager thinks that Asia is a good idea. Get in before the taxi driver in New York tells you that you need to get to Asia. That's when when the window's closed. Right now, the window's completely open, and there's an opportunity here for some good years, but it ain't always going to be open. You know, if you leave it too late and you come to Asia... You know, you'll find that a lot of it is sewn up already. Right now it's frontier. Here's where the, the opportunities are for the people who want to take a few risks. So, as they say, it's a challenge, but you've got to step outside your comfort zone. But I'm a great believer in the advice. Life begins at the end of your comfort zone. You know, what was ever achieved by living a comfortable life? As they say here in the in Japan, and I'm sure I've mentioned it on other podcasts, but I guess it's my mantra now. It's a Japanese saying, which I'll translate directly. And it says, the frog who lives in the well doesn't know the ocean. Think about that. That frog chooses to live in the well. But what would you rather have? The safety of that dark, dank well or the freedom to go out and explore the ocean? So there you go. Hopefully you enjoyed quite this crazy Asia Tech podcast today all around the world. These are crazy days, but they make me shine. Be prepared for the shift, everybody. I'll see you next time. My name's Graham Brown. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.